Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. 1 Peter, second chapter, beginning in verse 13. I will read through verse 17. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Let's pray. Father, you have ordained that it will be through the preaching of your word that lives are changed. Perhaps for the first time, in the visible outline of the resurrected Messiah being portrayed to the eyes of the hearts of those in this room, I pray that that would happen as we consider his example of humble submission. And your word is also ordained to be the means through which we, your people, are changed further still. Please change us by your word. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the stage is set. With the letter up to this point, the stage has been built and the people of God are ready to go live, as it were. These verses, interestingly, form what I would call the lights, camera, action moment in this letter. Last two weeks, three weeks, we spent going through the amazing verses of 9 through 12. God has created a people. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The whole point of salvation is to get us, as the people of God, to a place where we can Say something. Make something known. To go public with an idea, a truth, a proclamation. And then the shift in the letter is, here's how you do it. Here are the practical, everyday ways that you proclaim God's excellencies. Honorable conduct, as we saw in verse 12, if you want to look back up one verse Above, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So this theme of honorable conduct, in in many ways, is the controlling theme until about the end of chapter three, and it, it, at least explicitly, and it's implicit through the rest of the letter. Our job before the world is to be honorable as part of our attempt and God's plan to proclaim his excellencies to the world through us. It's not just don't sin. We are to manifest God's goodness by living honorably. And these verses... Verses 13 through 17 are the first big 
check mark, if you will, the first big bullet point in the list that Peter gives us of how to live honorably for the world. I have so many weighty burdens, heavy pastoral burdens to convey to you that are directly tied to this text. Here are some of them. The way we submit to governing authorities, number one, is not a political question. It is an evangelism question. The immediate context demands that. Why are we to behave honorably and submit to rulers? So that they would see our good conduct and glorify God on the day of visitation. Number two, the way we submit to governing authorities is part of a play, if you will, written and produced to prove the excellencies of our Lord. We've been called together to be this people, to behave in such a way, to prove a point. And what is that point? It's that God is excellent, and the Lord is excellent, and He deserves your worship. That's the point of this whole display. Number three. The way we submit the governing authorities, number three, is obligatory, even if they are unjust. You read down further through the context, you see that Jesus was able to save us because he suffered under the unjust treatment of rulers. And he leaves us an example to follow in his footsteps. His example is not just to inspire us. You get the point. Be a moving example of humility. It is to be followed. And it is safe for you, brothers and sisters, to follow the example of Jesus. Even when unjust rulers are part of the equation. Number four, the way we submit the governing authorities is more of a question about posture and humility and honor than it is a question necessarily of specific actions. I think the text itself will demonstrate that. We'll see that in a little bit. But also, the whole Bible supports this. Not necessarily about what you do or don't do. It's maybe the flavor or posture or way that you do it and what, how it comes across to those watching you and how it comes across to those in authority over you. And lastly, number five, the way that we often lawyer ourselves out of obedience to a text like this is really not about freedom or politics. It's usually a cover-up for evil. So, Act 1, Scene 1. The stage is set. Lights, camera, action. Be subject, for the Lord's sake, to every human institution. What's your response to hearing that? You've just been told you're a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession, to proclaim His excellencies. And then the first practical thing He tells you to do is subject yourselves to human institutions. It feels unwelcome. It feels unexciting. It feels frustrating and unexpected. Act 1, scene 1 of this play that God has produced is to prove a point to the world about His excellencies. And the way He's going to do it is through a group of people, small and opposed though we may be, as we submit ourselves to the governing authorities. That seems counterintuitive, and yet this is God's wisdom. Be subject he says. Honestly, there is no ambiguity here. The ambiguity that you may feel or think about this text usually comes from our so-called or supposed sophisticated answers to this text and how we work it out and all the nitty-gritty 
examples or exceptions? Maybe, how does this apply in a constitutional republic? We try to weasel ourselves out of heart posture that's being commanded here. This text is given to us for our good for this time. It's good for you. It's safe to follow the example of Jesus. Literally, it could be rendered a few different ways. Submit yourself to the governing authorities. Arrange yourself underneath the governing authorities, the, the human institutions. Or even yield yourself to. And it's the same word that Peter and Paul both use when talking about wives being submissive to their husbands. And what I find fascinating is that those who are most eager to lawyer our way out of submission and obedience to this text of submitting to earthly human institutions are the very same ones who take this word as it applies to wives and say there are no exceptions. And the only biblical word for that is hypocrisy. Husbands, the way you submit to the authority that God has placed in your life is the example that you set for your wives for how she ought to submit to you. What kind of example are you giving? The same applies to you fathers. What example are you giving your children? How do you want your wife and your children to be submissive and respectful and honoring even when you're a stupid head, as we fathers and husbands can be? Answer that question, and that's how you should be in subjection to and honor those who are in authority over you, even when they're stupid heads. You're always teaching. You're always sowing seeds. We should not be surprised when we reap what we sow. And what's really the problem here? Our hearts and our minds immediately respond with this question. But what if they are unjust? Understand. I'm going to thread the needle as many times as I can on this. You are never obligated to sin or believe false teaching, no matter who the authority is. Paul clarifies with the, Gen the Galatian churches, even if we were to come back to you, or if an angel is sent from heaven and declares to you a different gospel, don't believe it for a second. Doesn't matter how impressive the authority might be. Don't sin. Don't believe falsehood. However, this text isn't about that. Can you be subject to a governing authority and disobey a command? Can you be subject to your husband or to your parents and soberly and out of faith and humbly disobey? I think so. The answer would definitely be yes. But these cases of injustice... And the governing authority over us doing something wrong and leading us astray does not suspend the applicability of this commandment. You can still be under them and arrange yourself underneath them and be honoring to them. The example of Daniel and Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, gives us a perfect example of how to do this. They're called before Nebuchadnezzar. They didn't bow down to the golden image. The first things out of their lips is, O king, live forever. It's a merry greeting, but their posture was not one of protest. It was, we got to do what we got to do, O king. And as if the context were not enough to tell us why we should do this with the proclaiming of his excellencies and honorable conduct so that they would glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says it again. He says, for the Lord's sake. 
or the Lord's sake, why should we submit ourselves to or make ourselves in subjection to the governing authorities, the human institutions? It's for the Lord's sake. Sake is a word that gets thrown around a lot in theological discussions and in even modern slang, like for Pete's sake. You know, what, what does this word really mean? In Greek, it carries the sense of for him, for a person. Children, next time you do a, a chore that your parents give to you, you could say, I did it for your sake, mother. And try to win some brownie points with some sophisticated speaking. So this word sake is why I'm using the terminology of a play or a portrayal. Sake, this word sake, implies that something hangs in the balance. Something is at stake. Something can be gained or lost by the way that we act here. What can we really render to Jesus? He's the Lord of all creation. All authority has been given to him. So what can we really give to him? Well, You can glorify him. You can proclaim his excellencies. And you can help others, by the way that you behave, do the very same thing. And Peter is saying that one of the ways you help others do the very same thing, for for Jesus' sake, so that the nations would know his excellencies, is by you arranging yourself underneath and yielding yourself to human institutions. What is at stake, or what should matter most to us in the way that we act is not our personal freedoms. And it should not be liberation from unreasonable governments. It should be the name and fame of our Lord Jesus. And listen. I understand how unpopular this may be landing on your ears and how unlike this idea may be to all of us North Idahoans, especially if you've fled here for refuge. But hear me clearly. Very often in the grand narrative and play, if you will, that God is putting on, He proves to the world just how awesome he is by ordaining that his people suffer under unjust treatment from rulers. This is Christian history. This is the heritage of the church. We can try to flee from that as much as we want. And the people that Peter is writing to, maybe some of them did. Depending on when you date the writing of this, there may have been many people that he was writing to who fled from Rome because of Nero's persecution. If we date the authorship later, talk about that in a second. Nothing's wrong by in that act of flight, that fleeing from unjust government, if that can be done in faith. But consider again that this whole life, everything you see, everything you encounter, everyone you encounter, this this whole thing is not about your freedom or getting freedom or manifesting your freedom or beating your chest about the freedom that you think that you should have or that you think is being infringed upon. That's not what life is about. It is about the sake, the name, the fame of the Lord Jesus. The way we behave, the reason we should find every way we can to be submissive, obviously not sinning, obviously not believing anything that we are not commanded to believe by Scripture. The reason we do that without sinning, while doing our duty, and answering all the hard questions about what to do when we have to disobey and how to do that and still be humble is because the world is watching. And when they see us hope in God, even in the face of unjust treatment from rulers, as we are as submissive and humble and honoring as we can possibly be, then they will know our message is legit 
And we're not just here to gain the political upper hand. Our home is in Zion. This is how the Lord has chosen to set the stage, to commend the name of Jesus to the nations. What are you going to do about it? Remember, last week, when they speak against you as evildoers, it is going to happen. As we read in the psalm, I seek to do good and they find fault with me. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm confessing. I'm trying to do the right thing. And all these people, I'm suffering because I'm doing right. This goes back a long, long time, even to the king himself. The tension and the difficulty of suffering unjustly is the situation we have to get to in order to prove just how much our hope and identity is not here on this earth and how much our citizenship is not here in our nation or in this state, but is rather founded in the heavenly Jerusalem, in the celestial city, in New Zion. This is his play. It's about him. The concert hall belongs to him. And the whole point of the play is to prove to the audience, which he owns as well, that he is just as awesome as he says he is. And you and I are honored to be on the stage with a part to play. Do you like your script? Or do you find fault with the scriptwriter? Consider the response of the apostles as they leave the Sanhedrin, having been beaten, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. Consider the original recipients of the letter to the Hebrews, rejoicing in the plundering of their own possessions, knowing that they had a better inheritance, an abiding one. Is that us? It seems to me that our attitude can often be, let's do what we can politically and organizationally so that those things that these first century Christians suffered will never happen to us again. I'm pretty convinced that that's not what you should be doing as an individual, but I know it's not what the church should be doing. I'm sorry. I'm just not going to do it. Every human institution? We have had, honestly, some difficulty with this recently because the different levels of government aren't necessarily always on the same page and they tell you different things. Peter clarifies what he means in the next phrases, but for now, just know that a government with different layers not being on the same page does not suspend the applicability of this command. You don't just get throw it out because they disagree. You still have to be honoring. You still have to be submissive. You can be submissive in your posture and seek to honor everyone and be humble even as you try to figure out the best way forward and who to disobey. That's going to happen. It's going to happen a lot more frequently. We'll have to pick our poison more as we go on and more as the opposition mounts against the kingdom of God. He says, the emperor, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him. I do not think that we should take this as an indication of two abiding eternal principles of two layers of government. You've got the supreme and then you've got intermediaries, right? Two offices of state government. Some, I think, take it that way. That's, that's not what he's meaning. He's speaking of two ends of the spectrum. Honor everyone, he says in a little bit. Be subject to every human institution, whether it goes all the way up to the emperor himself or all the way down to some grunt official. That's what he's saying. That's the flavor here. Consider the mighty Roman Senate isn't even mentioned here, right? I mean, powerful beyond legend, right? But 
that's part of the human institution. That's what he's saying, that across the spectrum, find a way to submit yourself and be honoring and humble. The emperor, who is he talking about? Depending on, like, you said, like I said earlier, when you date this, this is, it's just one of two options. It's either Claudius or Nero, which, take your pick. I, I lean towards Claudius just because there's no indication of Peter interacting with any of the false teachings that developed later in the church's development. A few other reasons. I don't want to bore you with the details. But take your pick. Claudius, Caesar, or Nero. Wicked men opposed to God's work and God's church. Terrible. And this was either leading up to the persecution under Nero when he burned Rome and blamed the Christians for it and executed many, or this is Claudius picking up Christians out of their hometowns and home nations and flinging them across his empire to populate new colonies. Take your pick. I think because of what was going on in either case, it makes this command and Peter saying it to these people at this time more difficult. I think we can look at this and say, well, they had it easier. They had a supreme emperor to submit to. But the opposition was worse. I think the reason, one of the reasons it's so stark and stunning is that he specifically names the office of the emperor just because of how wicked most of the emperors were. And yet, the command is the same. Honor the emperor. Submit yourself. And remember why. Remember the, the, the why behind this. It is to play our part in the grand display of the excellencies of our God. The Lord wrote the script, and it is our job to play our part well. Your home isn't here. Play your part well. The curtain's going to fall soon enough. And it's needful at this point, I think, to bring in verses 18 through 23. Just look further down, and I'm, I'm just going to read them and make a few comments as we go. Servants, be subject, same word, to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Same principle. For this is a gracious thing. You receive divine assistance and assurance when these things happen. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good, and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this, this <laughs> embrace this, good for you. It is safe to follow the example of Jesus. For to this you have been called. Why? Because Christ also suffered for you. We could add in parentheses there, unjustly. There was never a more unjust suffering than the death of Jesus Christ. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Consider the flavor of Jesus' posture to his oppressors as a grid through which to understand how to respond to yours. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He puts this, fascinatingly, we'll get to this next week, in the context of salvation. I 
I think it's important to bring that in because he uses the example of Jesus as to undergird his exhortations to serve it, the servants towards their masters. But Jesus' relationship with those who put him to death was not a master-servant relationship. So the applicability of Jesus' example stretches all the way back to verse 13. Because those were rulers. Three different entities, the high priests, Herod, and Pilate, all conspiring against him. And what was his demeanor? What was his posture? That's your example, brothers and sisters. It is safe for you. The principle is what is important here. The way that the Lord garners glory for himself, both in his own life here as he walked among us and through us, is through our humble, quiet endurance of unjust treatment from those in authority over us. That's offensive. And I'm sorry. I do want to thread the needle. Like we've already said, it's not wrong to flee Rome. You must not sin. There's almost nothing more consequential than making sure that in our endurance under unjust treatment that we do not sin. That's what should matter most to you. You're being commanded to sin. Don't comply. Obey God rather than men. All of these principles apply. Pray, pray, pray for the hearts of your persecutors. Pray for our nation. Pray for our leaders. We protest more than we pray. We are angry more than we are willing to entrust our anxieties about the situation over to the Lord. And that applies at all levels. And I want to say there are recourses Ultimately, the Emperor Supreme, there's not much a Christian can do to oppose mistreatment from the Emperor. But if you are in some lower level of oppression or abuse, use the means of grace that God has installed into the world, like the church and the state. That's not sinful. Again, like I said, point four as we begin, it's more of a question about posture and humility than it is about specific actions in the nitty-gritty exception cases. But again, that's not what this text is about. I fear, brothers and sisters, that we will very soon find ourselves in a situation where we really have no recourse to oppose mistreatment as Christians. The twilight of our favor in the world is waning. And you can try as hard as you want to try and stay off that day and exert all your energies to try and hold that. It's inevitable. Things will, things will go from bad to worse and the love of many will grow cold. It's going to happen. There will come a day, and it may not be very long from now, when we are hated by all men. That's a promise from our Lord. Are we ready? I don't think so. Not in this nation, we're not. And I feel that we are just very practiced at, in effect, railing against the scriptwriter. We want to try to make our part something else. A triumphant, victorious church that controls things. That's not his plan. Not until the end. But who is my emperor? This is a question I'm using to characterize the response of some who I think are similar to the lawyer in the situation when Jesus gives the parable of the good Samaritan, so-called. Luke chapter 10 and behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? When we read a command like this, the clarity of God's word often is at odds with our desire to pontificate and differentiate and nuance and create all the exception cases we will. And we ask, paradigmatically, but who is my emperor? Who is really over me in authority? And I think the reason we ask it is very often out of a desire, just like the lawyer, to justify ourselves. Instead of desiring to do the hard thing and play our part in this display of the excellencies of our God. We don't want to suffer unjustly. Who does? We know the commandment. We know that it was given to people who are in a worse situation politically than we are. But we still want to ask this because I think if there's a path in our minds and our hearts to let ourselves off the hook, of being this way to the human institutions, we'll, we will take ourselves right off that hook if we can. A better question is this. Does the human institution have the power to enforce their will? Legally, forcefully, bindingly? Then you must rest in the sovereignty of God who determines the borders and times of your dwelling. But what if it's unconstitutional? We'll talk to Habakkuk about the Chaldeans. But what if they're abusing authority? We'll talk to David about how he treated Saul. Compare also how Abigail responded to Nabal, her husband's foolishness. This is an amazing story, and it's so helpful in some of these things to answer some of the exception cases. But that's for a different time. What if they command me to sin? Well, look at how the apostles responded to the Sanhedrin. Rejoice in being mistreated for the name. Are you going to be happy about it? These are crazy ideas. This is our heritage. We're just out of practice. The problem is when you draw the line so broadly where it's, it's not about the gospel anymore and obedience to the Lord, but just freedom generally and insisting on rights, then you've kind of cut yourself off from the joy that would be available if it were about the name. You've made the battlefield somewhere else, trying to hold on to what you can. Who is in authority over me? It's similar to asking, who is my parent? The, the, the reformers saw it this way. They saw in the fourth commandment a paradigm for how we are to submit to the governing authorities. You don't choose the nation you're born into. You don't choose your parents. The command's the same. Obviously, there are exceptions. Obviously, don't sin. Obviously, you might have to disobey at some point. But the exhortation remains the same. Like I already said, just consider and rest in God's sovereignty over setting up the nations. God is better at playing statecraft than you are. He appoints the rise and fall of empires. The heart of the king is like channels of water in his hand, and he turns it wherever he will. You believe that? You rest in that? Just because we, the people, have authority on paper or theoretically, it doesn't change this. This applies to you. That's the point. It will be unjust. That's the stage he's ordained for you to portray to the watching world that our hope is not here, that he is excellent, that he is worthy of your worship and your hope. 
or to governors sent by him. So this is the question of submission to intermediaries. There's not a whole lot to say on this point that's not already been said, but I'll use this to address the issue of the Lord using governing authorities, even unjust ones, even less than ideal ones, even not very impressive ones, for our benefit. Whether to the emperor as supreme, so whatever you would fill in to the analog to that for you in the situation in this nation, or all the way down the line. I'm one of eight children, as many of you know, and very often as the three older of us were, were more mature, we were left in charge. Let me tell you, it's much easier for a younger sibling to obey mom and dad when mom and dad are there. But when older sibling is entrusted with authority for a brief time, temporarily, obedience is not as appealing. There's less force in that command when it comes from brother, older brother. This is how we learn obedience, though through submission to less impressive, less than ideal rulers. I've already mentioned it, but consider Habakkuk's complaint. Israel needed to be punished. The prophet did not make an argument about that. His problem was that he was going to use, that God was going to use the Chaldeans. I wouldn't have an issue if you, Lord, were to discipline us directly, but I got a problem with you using the Chaldeans. We wouldn't have a problem, Lord, if you directly come and take away our lampstand like you threatened in the Revelation to John. But when you use this chump to do it, I got a problem with that. We wouldn't have a problem, Lord, if you were to come out of heaven and discipline us and rebuke us. Or if you were to use a perfect president. But this? In the old days, when things were more barbaric, when a child was unruly, sometimes the parents said, go into the woods and cut a twig for yourself. The point is this, we don't get to pick the rod. And I feel that Christians' posture, as of late, has increasingly been more and more this. You can't spank me with that towards the Lord. And you are forfeiting grace. We seem to be more interested in pointing out how the intermediary is at odds with the earthly supreme, whether that be the Constitution or we are the people. Rather than putting our hands over our mouths, considering our ways in returning to the Lord, we want to point the finger. How much worse will it have to get before we actually stop and listen and take stock of our own house. It seems like we're more interested in protesting unjust laws and rattling saber against unjust officials than cleaning our own house. Mask mandates bother us more than perpetual preaching of heresy from our own pulpits. Bad tax policy bothers us more than a coldness and a severe lack of mercy in God's people. Blunders at the executive level seem to bother us more than apostasy. It seems. I don't know your heart, but I know mine, and I know what's hard. And I know what a temptation is to despise authority. And I'm calling us to yield and to obey. But we shrug our shoulders, it seems, and say, well, it's out of my hands. All these problems in the church, they're, they're not really anything I can address. I can't really clean. We can't really clean our own house. We'll rather be the revolutionary to change the human institutions 
That's what we seem really interested in. Brothers, these things ought not be. And Peter gives us the purpose of government. The purpose of government, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. This is the ideal function of government. This is why God established government in the first place to be a means of grace to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. It's extremely straightforward and it is a mercy that secular government exists. So here's what some people say in view of this definition. They say something like this. Okay, see, see, so if the governing official is not punishing those who do evil and is not praising those who do good, or if they reverse the scales and they are punishing those who do good and praising those who do evil, then they've invalidated themselves. They're no longer legitimate. And I don't have to be submissive. I don't have to listen to them at all. I can dishonor them as much as I like. That's a common and oft-repeated response to these passages. But this obscure pastor in a little town in North Idaho doth protest that just won't square with the context. It won't square with the situation that the original hearers, the original recipients were in. The emperors were being unjust. And Jesus' example later given in the following verses is specifically Wicked men, as Peter himself says when he prays in Acts, by your predestination, all of these unjust, evil people were drawn against Jesus to do against him all that your word had ordained. It doesn't change it. It makes it more difficult. This is our part to play. This is your script that you've been handed by the sovereign king of all things. And it's not just me who doth protest. It's always a maybe inappropriate flex to say that the reformers are on your side and Augustine, just for good measure, but that is the case in this issue. I won't bore you with longer quotes from each of them, but here's one from Calvin. The Lord here lays down this universal rule, specifically that knowing how Every individual is set over us by his appointment, meaning God's appointment. We should pay him reverence, gratitude, obedience, and every duty in our power. And it makes, this is Calvin, and it makes no difference whether those on whom the honor is conferred are deserving or not. Here's one from Augustine. This is beautiful. The dominion of bad men is hurtful, chiefly to themselves who rule, for they destroy their own souls by greater license in wickedness, while those who are put under them in service are not hurt, except by their own iniquity. For to the just, all evil imposed on them by unjust rulers are not the punishment of crime, test of virtue. Man, though a slave, the good man, sorry, the good man, though a slave is free, the wicked, though he reigns, is a slave. Not the slave of a single man, but what is worse, the slave as of many masters as he has vices. This is our heritage. This is the example of Christ, and it's safe for you. From chapter 3, Peter says this, For who is there to harm you if you were zealous for what is good? It's rhetorical. The natural answer is say, well, no one's there to harm you if you do good. But Peter even sees immediately after that there actually may be those who want to harm you if you do good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. As I've said, just imagine what blessing and what grace we have forfeited ourselves because we have not had this attitude. I think the problem, brothers and sisters, is that we are afraid. 
we do fear them and we are troubled in our hearts. So many Christians may feel empowered to have an unsubmissive, insubordinate, prideful, chest-beating, saber-rattling, protesting, vengeful, mockful attitude towards the leaders in, the na- in this nation. But as I said, I'm not doing it. You can keep all the let's go brand chants. You can boldly go vandalize fuel pumps with I did that stickers if you want to, but I will try to follow the example of the Lord Jesus who saved us all because he was willing to suffer by unjust rulers. That's the gospel. You wouldn't be saved if he didn't submit himself underneath. He was the king. He was David's heir, the son of God, the son of man. Could have called down 10,000 angels if he wanted to, but willingly put himself under all of that so he could save you. And not so to take yourself off the hook so you wouldn't have to do the same thing. The play is still going on. And this is our part to play as well. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. It's so helpful when the Bible is so clear. This is the will of God. Many young people struggled. What's God's will for me? What's his will for my life? This is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. The will of God is connected contextually with his purpose of salvation so that the Gentiles would see our honorable conduct and glorify God on the day of visitation, some of them being saved. We've got a lot of t-shirt ideas from preaching. One of them, one of my favorite, don't be like Esau, right? (laughs) Don't be like Cain. These are just nice little snippets from the Bible, but this one's really great. Do good, silence fools. There are worse mottos that you could have for your life. This is God's will for you. Do good, silence fools. I love that this text doesn't specify who the ignorant people are. It could be your opponent, your neighbor. It could be the governing official themselves. But by doing good, this is your, this is your God-ordained power over them to eventually silence them by doing good. I also love that the text doesn't specify when they will be silenced. For many, they won't repent, and it will be finally on the day of visitation when your good conduct before them finally silences them. Just pray for our enemies that it will not take that long. If we had a sense, if we were allowed a window, or half a second, into what is waiting for those who reject the gospel, I think it would radically change our attitude. And we'd be much more humble and much more willing to do whatever it took to put on a display of God's excellencies because we're out of time. There's time yet still, but we're out of time and we don't have time to try to hold on to our rights as they slip through our fingers. I feel like we just don't believe in the kingdom ethic anymore. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things that the Gentiles seek, they will be added to you. We're to use everything we have. The freedom that we have from God, as he says here, look at this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. My fear, brothers and sisters, is those of us who have lived for so long in a country founded on the idea of freedom, that we have habits and patterns and attitudes that fly under the banner of freedom, but really are just a cover-up for evil. Are you more interested in preserving your rights and your freedoms than you are repenting of sin? 
and being a faithful servant to God? It's a priority question. Is all of our hand-wringing and our energies and our prayers and our time or all the discretionary amount of it spent on keeping those freedoms? We're to use everything He's given us, the freedom primarily that He's given us in Christ that will never go away and whatever freedoms we have culturally that will come and go to draw all people to himself. In summary, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, as if to make sure we really get the point and really make sure that he's super clear on what our posture and heart is. Peter summarizes for us exactly what he wants us to do. Honor everyone. That official, that particular person in government, that particular group of people in government, whatever it is that you think that you have excused yourself because of your theological lawyering to not honor, those are the people that Peter wants to come to your mind to know that you're supposed to honor them. Honor everyone. And he doesn't even specify here, honor everyone in government. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Why does he throw this in here? I think it's because very often in our attempt to preserve our freedoms, it comes at odds with loving the brothers. And this is immensely personal for me and painful. I can use this example because neither party are here anymore, but there was a situation where after the lockdown, we were all coming together. We had no idea what we were dealing with and we were trying to wear masks and be sensitive to everyone and just left it up to individuals to decide what they wanted to do. Trying to walk the line in a season of confusion. And we were trying so hard to get our older members to feel safe in coming here. And because one of them overheard a younger person essentially verbally beating their chest and saying how much they didn't fear and how much they weren't going to submit and how much their freedom really mattered to them, they didn't come back. And eventually left. Love the brotherhood. If your freedom matters more to you than the brotherhood, it's sin. It's wickedness. Fear God. And then the binary is essentially this. Are you going to fear the unjust ruler who has power over you? Or are you going to fear God understanding that this is his plan manifested through the life of Jesus to endure unjust treatment from these wicked rulers to show to the world that this isn't our home, and He is our hope. He is our treasure. Are you going to fear God? Or are you going to fear man? And as if to silence any remaining opposition on the grounds of the emperor's behavior for his original hearers, he closes with this line of command and exhortation, making it clear, you can't get yourself off the hook, honor the emperor. And why? brothers and sisters. Why? Because we have a greater emperor who dwells in unapproachable light. He is the true king. We shouldn't be worried. It's safe for you. It can't, what can men do to you, child of God? What can they really do? We submit ourselves out of reverence for the Lord Jesus. Our objective is to make Disciples for salvation. The answer will be different for every person depending on your station of life and your flexibility and resources. We didn't have time to answer all the exception cases. What I'm after is your posture, your heart, your attitude, your willingness to play your part well in this grand display of God's excellencies. What will our answer be? What will yours be? Let's pray. Father, I confess 
my attitude does not often align with your purposes. You have ordained that we would commend your excellencies through willingness to even suffer unjust treatment. Give us wisdom to know where to resist and where to disobey, but give us this heart that your Apostle Peter commands, that we would be willing and eager and ready to honor everyone, knowing that it is a gracious thing to suffer unjustly. Give us faith. Increase our faith. This is hard. We pray it all for the sake of our Lord Jesus. Amen.